Well, here we are. Another amazing opportunity to be together, another chance to open up God's Word, the Bible, and to hear from God. And, and hey, if you're just joining us on the journey, we are in a series in what's called the Gospel of Luke. And we've been journeying through the story of this ancient biography about the life of Jesus written by someone named Luke. And today we come to Luke chapter 8 in that journey. And I'm so excited that we get to dive in together on this amazing passage. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and turn to Luke chapter 8. We're going to be camping out in verses 1 to 15 today. But before we get to the text, uh, I want to share a story about an experience that I had a few weeks ago when my family and I went downtown to spend the day in Vancouver. It was a beautiful day. One of those days where it's like you could just wish that that day could be every day. It was a clear blue sky. There was not a cloud in the sky or anywhere to be seen. The sun was shining. There was a crispness and a chill in the air. It was the, it was the perfect day to be outside. And so we decided, hey, we're going to go down. We're going to spend the day together around Science World. We're going to play at the park, go for a walk, have a picnic, and of course, start the day with coffee. So that was the plan as we headed down, but like all good plans, sometimes they don't start off the right way. Um, and that's what happened on this day is I decided, well, I'm going to get my family set up and I'm going to go grab a coffee. And so there, luckily there's a, a coffee shop right across the street from Science World. And so I headed over there, grabbed a coffee and started on my way back across the street. And if you know Quebec Street, it's a busy street, lots of activity. And, and right now they have this construction going on on one side where there's these concrete barriers that are set up. and they separate the road from the sidewalk. And so I'm crossing the street and I get this brilliant idea in my mind that I'm just going to run up to this concrete barrier and I'm gonna jump over it. And I just have in my mind this image that I'm going to run up and just casually leap over, land on the other side and continue on my way. And that's what it was, it was a dream. Because as I ran up to this barrier and casually jumped off, about halfway in that jump, I realized that the barrier was a lot higher than I thought it was, and my shin smashing into the top of that bar barrier made me realize that that was actually true. And so I flipped on my face, fell face down on the ground, cut my hands, my shin is on fire. I have this gash in my shin that's throbbing and in pain. I lost my coffee. The whole purpose of going across the street in the first place, it exploded all over me and I didn't want to lay down for too long and so I popped right back up just hoping that no one saw but of course there were cars that were driving by and they honked to show their appreciation for my spectacular fall but I wouldn't look at them because I didn't want to acknowledge my shame um, and as I'm limping back to my family, feeling the burn in my shin, not wanting to look for fear that I've got a bone sticking out of it or something, I have this thought that there's this gap between what I want to do and what I'm actually able to do. And that gap is a lot larger than I'd like to admit. And my wife kindly reminded me of that much later after she showed me compassion and love. She reminded me that that gap is quite large. I'm not 21 anymore. And I, I, I believe you, babe. Uh, and so thank you for your care and for the truth you've spoken over my life. But as I've processed that moment, it's not just the physical gap that I've started to experience, I've started to feel like there's gaps in other areas of my life too, specifically the gap between the person that I believe Jesus says I am and the person I see when I look in the mirror. Because honestly, sometimes 
I, I hear that Jesus has this life that he's promised us, this abundant life, the, the identity that he's given me, and I believe that in my head, but honestly, believe it in my heart is a whole other matter. And sometimes I get so frustrated and disgruntled and discouraged that I just feel like giving up. And maybe today as you come, you feel that way too. Maybe you don't. But regardless of where you find yourself today and how that, that gap might land or not land in your life, Luke is going to speak into that today. And he's going to specifically speak to us about the idea that the space between who we are now and the person that we want to become is the space where Jesus does his greatest work. And so Luke is going to lead us to that place. But before we get there, Luke is going to make this summary statement in the first three verses of chapter 8. And he's going to summarize what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is saying. Look with me at Luke chapter 1, or chapter 8, verse 1, where he says this. Soon afterward, he, and he's, he's talking about Jesus, soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And so Jesus is in this region of Israel called Galilee, and he's going from town to town and place to place, and he's bringing and proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. And this is how Luke starts us off in chapter 8. He almost gives this reminder or this push notification to us, saying like, hey, this is what Jesus is doing here. This is what he's saying. This is why he came, and this is what he's teaching. And so Luke is going to show us how Jesus was bringing the kingdom to bear. And he shows us by the people that were with him. He talks about the 12. These are the, the 12 young men that Jesus invited to be his closest followers, to be his disciples. The 12 that he would train and form and then give his spirit and send out to continue the, the mission that he starts here in these pages. And so Jesus has these 12 young men who are fishermen and political activists, um, tax collectors, this, this ragtag group of teenagers surround him. But he also has these women. And, and Luke tells us that he's healed these women from being under the influence of evil spirits. He's healed them from physical sickness and illness, that he set them free and he's brought them into this new community that he's forming and they're all with Jesus and they're living life together. And so you have this, this picture of this new community being formed around Jesus of blue-collar and white-collar people, women on the lowest strata of society, women on the highest strata of society, people that have doubts, people who struggle with pride, people who the rest of the society would have passed over. And yet here is Jesus with them. He's changing lives and he's at work to see the wholeness and the beauty of heaven break in and invade the brokenness of this world. And so Luke starts us off with Jesus doing, but he says Jesus is also teaching, that he's announcing the arrival and the reality of the kingdom of God. And in this cultural moment, this is no small thing because Jesus is speaking this message into a culture that has intense expectancy for people who had waited for generation after generation for God to keep the promise that he had made to them something like a thousand years before that. See, we're talking almost a thousand years before this 
time when Jesus was on planet Earth, when God himself came into history to, to live in the world he created as Jesus of Nazareth, that God had made a promise to a king named David that one day, one of his ancestors would become and become a king who would establish and reign over a never-ending, unshakable, eternal kingdom. And for reference, it's really interesting is that if Jesus showed up today in Abbotsford and he began speaking the same message that he's speaking here, then God's promise would have been made sometime around the year 1021. So God's people have been waiting for a long time. There's this intense expectancy, this anticipation of the moment when God is finally going to act to keep his promise. And into that place, all of a sudden, comes a carpenter's son from Nazareth. And he says, the time is now. The moment has come. God is on the move. All the promises God has made are coming true in me. I'm the one you've been waiting for, Jesus says. I'm the one who's going to do all that needs to be done so that you can have all that God has promised to you. And so into this cultural moment, Jesus brings good news that hope is here and a new beginning is possible. It's this announcement that history is at a decisive turning point. That with the arrival and the activity of Jesus, God was turning the world upside down and inside out and he was changing it forever. The waiting is done. Hope is here in Jesus. God is doing something new in the world and anyone can get in on it. A new beginning is possible. Hope is here. This was good news then, and this is good news still today. That Jesus is alive, and he is hope for the hurting, and that he offers anyone, no matter who you are, what you've done, what's been done to you, a new beginning. And so for Jesus, this moment has, is pivotal. It's that the ancient story of Israel has reached its greatest chapter. It's the chapter that we live in currently here and now. And Luke is bringing us into this cultural moment. He's bringing us into this greatest chapter in the story of ancient Israel that we are the descendants of. And he reminds us of that as we open up this beautiful chapter 8 of Luke's gospel. But it's only the beginning. Because as we move on into verses 4 to 15, a shift starts to happen in how Jesus teaches. In verses 1 to 3, we see Jesus teaching to announce the arrival and the reality of God's kingdom. But then we turn to verses 4 to 15, and the tone and the purpose behind Jesus' teaching shifts. He begins teaching to form people and how they think and see the life of faith in God's kingdom and how they live in the world. And so from this point on in verse 4 onward in Luke chapter 8, Jesus is out to form the people around him into people of the kingdom. And this starts strikingly with a large crowd and a teaching called a parable. Look at verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Now, understandably, Jesus could draw a crowd. I mean, pretty much wherever Jesus went, if you look at the, the biographies of his life called the Gospels, wherever he went, he was like this magnet that drew people to him because of the things he taught, because of the things he was doing, um, just who he was. Jesus was like this magnet that drew people to him. And so here in verse 4, we see this huge crowd has gathered around Jesus. But Jesus is not out to build a crowd. Jesus is out to build people of the kingdom whose heart beats in step with God and who think and see things like God does and then puts that into practice all 168 hours of the week. Jesus is not out to build a crowd. He's out to build people of the kingdom. And so he teaches to form our thinking and he uses this style of teaching called parables. Now, if you know anything about Jesus' teaching is that this was one of the most common ways that he taught. He would use metaphors and stories to connect with people, things they knew, but then to teach them about God and, and life with him and how it was all meant to work together. And the little, literal f- translation of the word parable is a placing beside. And so Jesus would take spiritual things and he'd place them beside things that everyone understood, everyone was familiar with, and then he would use that to point them to some greater truth. And I remember that was the gateway to me receiving the gospel for the very first time in my mid-20s. The church that I was invited to, they had this um, way of using songs and music that everyone could listen to on the radio, everyone understood, everyone knew that things, songs that people were familiar with. And they would actually play those songs and then use those songs as a part of the message to point people to the truths that God wanted to reveal to them that day. And I remember the first time I went there and the band started playing Fleetwood Mac's Landslide. And whenever I hear that song to this day, I, I see in my mind's eye that stage and I can hear that song being sung. And it reminds me of the moment that came just after when I heard the news that Jesus loved me and died for me and rose again and is my Lord and Savior and that he did that for me. And so I still remember the power of parable in my own life and here the power of Jesus' parable is before us and, and he's using this method to teach us. And, he sell, and so he tells a story about a farmer planting seeds in a field. And at first glance, the parable in itself is simple, that there's a farmer and he he goes out to his field and he's got a bag of seed over his shoulder and he's tossing the seed out onto the ground. And as he does so, the seed lands on different soils and depending on what soil the, the seed falls on, it either grows or it doesn't. It's a pretty simple story. But Jesus isn't talking about farming. He's not talking about crops. He's not talking about seeds. And the disciples sense this, and so they come to Jesus and they ask him about it in verse 9. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And so thanks, Jesus, that cleared everything up. Let's go home, we're done. No, Jesus' answer is kind of cryptic, but the way he answers the question is, In two ways. First, he quotes a guy God had tapped on the shoulder to speak for him hundreds of years earlier. A guy named Isaiah, a prophet named Isaiah. And Jesus says, this is why I teach in parables. He says, I teach like this for a purpose. 
And he says to the disciples, you've been given insight and understanding into the things of God and the kingdom. And when I teach like this, when I teach in parables, you get it because God has made it known to you. This is a divine download. God has given you the ability to understand what I'm seeing, to see behind the veil of the parable to what is actually being said. But he said some people, they don't see it or they don't get it yet. They don't hear what is really being said and they don't see what is right in front of them. And so Jesus kind of puts this reality before us and and what it does is it tells us that Jesus is telling stories and puts teachings into words that everyone can understand so that they have the opportunity to hear and see what God is doing in the world, what he wants to do in their lives and what he's trying to reveal to them. And so another way to think of it is that if you're open to God, God is going to work with that. If you're not open to God, God is going to work with that. Wherever you are, wherever you are at with God in your spiritual journey, God is going to meet you there and he's going to give you the opportunity to respond to him. And so Jesus tells his disciples, this is why I teach like this. But he doesn't stop there. I mean, Jesus is so gracious and he's so patient. It's just incredible. I mean, remember, he's called these young men and women to him. He has invited them and he's, he's forming them and he's teaching them and he has endless patience for them and endless grace. And so he doesn't just tell them why I teach in parables. He doesn't just answer their question. He actually goes one step further to explain it to them. Verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And so at its heart, Jesus is teaching us about the human response to divine teaching. His starting point in verse 11 is the word of God, which very simply is God's message to us embodied in Jesus and written in the Bible. And so when Jesus mentions God's word, this is what he's talking about, this message of God that he embodies, that has been put down into the pages of what we call the Bible. This is the divine teaching Jesus is drawing our attention to. And then in his explanation of the parables, he repeatedly hits on this reality of how each soil hears this message of God and then responds to it in different ways because of the condition of the soil. And so when Jesus does this, what he's doing is he's drawing our attention to the source of life and teaching in the kingdom, the the thing that we are to look to to guide our thoughts, to, to know God, to encounter God, to shape the way we think, to shape the way we live our lives. He's drawing our eyes to this. And he's addressing this fundamental reality that God is a God who speaks. That God is not a God who remains hidden or hides himself, but God is a God who is speaking and is revealing himself to us and to the world that he created, whether it's through Jesus or the Bible or the spirit or creation. 
God has spoken and is speaking to the world and to us about himself and his purposes and his ways. And so God is not silent. We just have to pay attention to what he's saying and doing. And we need to hear that. We need to pay attention to what God is saying and what God is doing in our lives and in the world around us because there are forces, Jesus tells us, that are working against this happening. In verse 12, Jesus references um, an opponent of God named Satan, the devil. He says there are spiritual forces at play working actively against God and his purposes in the world. Jesus says that, Um, The first soil, the path, that before the seed that is sown can actually take root and belief in Jesus can happen, Satan, God's adversary, comes and takes away what God was trying to plant. And so Jesus doesn't pull punches here. He puts before us a very real reality that the the Bible puts before us, that there is a spiritual realm and that there is uh, more than this material world, the physical world that we know. That there's a, a realm, a spiritual realm operating around us. And, and Paul, one of Jesus' followers, he wrote a big part of the Bible that's after Jesus called the New Testament. He would actually write about this battle that is taking place in the spiritual realm. In Ephesians, this letter to the church in Ephesus, he writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in heavenly places. And so this is the reality that we see at play here in verse 12, that there are forces actively working against God and that these forces have the ability to derail belief if we don't pay close attention. But it's not just the spiritual forces that Jesus references. There are other forces at play too. And Jesus hits on this in verses 13 to 14. In verse 13, he talks about the external pressures of life He talks about the kind of person that hears what God is saying to them and receives it with joy. They're they're joyful that they hear the, the words and the message of God and they're drawn to God and they begin to walk with him. But what God is saying to them never sinks into their heart. It doesn't shape them from the inside out. It doesn't transform them. It doesn't stick there. And because of that, when when testing comes, when external pressures break in like hardship or conflict, like a global pandemic, the result is they slowly drift away because the external pressures exposed the lack of roots and depth within them of faith. And so Jesus references these external pressures. And then there's the things that he describes in verse 14, the cares of life, the riches and pleasures of life. And so these are the worries and the, and, uh, of life, the things that we worry about, the day-to-day things that, that accumulate on our to-do list. These are the, the money and the financial security that we crave and the, the, the desire for possessions. This is the, the pursuit of physical and sensual pleasure as an ultimate aim and goal of your life. Jesus is saying that these things can choke out the things of God in your life and that these things have the potential to distract us from what God is saying to us. And whether we realize it or not, we are living under what thinker and writer Charles Hummel calls the tyranny of the urgent. See, he theorized years ago that our lives are often driven by things that require or demand immediate attention, things that are call out for us and and, and pull us away uh, from the things that are most important. He says we often live in this tension between those things and the things that are most important. And he makes this observation that most of the time, 
It's the urgent things that win over the most important. The next email, the text you haven't returned, the newsfeed you haven't refreshed in the last few minutes, the demands of your boss doing your errands and paying your bills, the worries of life, the pursuit of physical and sensual pleasure, the chase to fill the bank account and trust in that to take care of you. All these things, while not evil in and of themselves, have the power to pull us away, to distract us and choke out what is most important in our life. And Hummel's conclusion at the end of his article was that your greatest danger is letting the urgent things crowd out the important. And so in this context, what is the most important thing according to Jesus? First, that we pay attention to what God is saying to us. And secondly, that we pay attention to our hearts. Because again, Jesus is teaching in a parable. And so he's not really teaching about soils, just like he wasn't really teaching about seeds. What he's actually teaching about is the human response to divine teaching that happens in the human heart. And we see Jesus reference the heart directly in verses 12 and 15, which tells us that this is ultimately a matter of the heart that Jesus is teaching about. And so again, just like last week when, when Pastor Nathan addressed the Sermon on the Plains, did an excellent job in doing that. Jesus is again putting the spotlight on the human heart as the meeting place, as the intersection point between the human and the divine. And in verse 15, we see the kind of heart that accepts what the divine is depositing. He talks about a heart with good soil, the heart that has been transformed by God's spirit and has been formed by God's word, the heart that clings to what God says and let it, lets it grow deep roots in its heart. The heart that over time develops the quality that makes growth possible and the heart that ultimately produces fruit because of all those things. And so it's very clear that Jesus is saying that the heart of a kingdom person is the heart of the good soil, is the verse 15 heart. And so Jesus is inviting us to pay attention to our hearts. Why? Because the greatest journey you are on is not the one you take with your feet, it's the one that happens in your heart. The deep and unseen journey that we take with God, where he works deep inside us, the, the things that we can't see happening, but that ultimately lead over time to growth and fruitfulness and flourishing. And so Jesus is inviting you and he's inviting me to take a journey with him. A journey that doesn't happen overnight, a journey that takes time, it takes attention, it, it means paying attention to God, holding on to his word, it means putting God's word into practice. I mean, Jesus is very clear in places like Luke chapter 6, verse 47, and even at the end of, of the st a story, just a few verses later in Luke chapter 8, verse 21, that agreement with God's word is not enough, is that we need to also combine that with action that when we hear and when we do, our hearts become well-built. And so Jesus is saying for this kind of heart to be cultivated in us, we have to do more than agree with him, but we have to actually hold on to what he says, cling to it, allow it to get deep into us, and then put that into practice. And then when that happens, our heart is well-built. It's cultivated and tended in such a way that growth can happen and we can receive what God is trying to say to us. And so we need to pay attention to our hearts because if we don't do that, if we don't pay attention to our hearts, something else will. John Mark Comer, uh, in a book called Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, says that what you give your attention to is the person you become. 
that is a striking line to me. It's challenges that we become what we give our attention to. And so whatever has your attention is actually shaping you on the very deepest levels of who you are. And God's heart for you is that he would be the one and his message to you would be the thing that would shape your heart. And so are you paying attention to what God is saying to you? Are you listening for him and how he's speaking? Are you paying attention to your heart? This journey is not easy. It won't be quick. And it goes against the pace of culture. In a, in a culture of the quick and the fast and the busy and the life hack and the apps that make our life easy, the overnight sensation, the YouTube celebrities, the viral videos, Jesus is inviting us to the slow process of heart change and heart investment. He's inviting you and me to a long journey of heart work, to pay attention to what God is saying to us and to pay attention to our hearts. And so at the end of the day, if you want the life Jesus wants, if you want to see growth, if you want to see your life bloom into maturity, if you want to become the person that you want to become, the pathway is through your heart. And when you surrender to that, when you open yourself up to what God is saying to you, when you hold on to it with all your being and you put it into practice, God will break new ground in your heart. And over time, he will bring something new to life in you. He will finish what he started. The new will come, but only if we pay attention to him and pay attention to our hearts now.